They buried me in the water and I came out new. Ha <laughs> ha! Now I'm baptized in blood. What's up, Sheepdog? Welcome to the Changing the Culture podcast. That was my boy at One Time Music. Go look him up on all the socials, Instagram. You can go find all of his music. That song is called Baptized in Blue. You're going to be able to listen to that at the end of this podcast episode. I hope you enjoy this episode and I hope you enjoy One Time's music. He's a fellow police officer. He's the man. I love this guy. Go listen to his shit. What's up, Sheepdog Nation? I'm so excited to bring you this episode of Changing the Culture Podcast with me, Autumn Clifford. Today we have uh, L. Morano. Did I pronounce that right? It's Marino. Marino. And he is a former police officer. He's going to introduce, uh, introduce himself to you, but he wrote a book. It's called LA's Last Street Cop. I'm really excited about this. Al, tell us all about you. Well, I'm a uh, former Los Angeles police officer. Uh, before that, I was in the uh, United States Marine Corps at the height of the Vietnam War, 1968-69, served with India Company 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines as a rifleman and radio man. Wow. Prior to that, I was raised in the main streets of Los Angeles, uh, adjacent to the Watts area, and uh, eight brothers, four sisters, and uh, in a home something like under 800 square feet. Wow. Oh, it was a real ride. Um, okay, sorry, I, I didn't hear I didn't hear the last thing. It I just want to make sure. It's it's not you. It's it's my it goes in and out. Okay. Uh, um, Al, tell me about your career. So you worked for LA PD? Correct. Now oh, wow. After trying uh, to get on the department from September the 17th, 1970, I wasn't hired until uh, August of 1975. I overcame nine separate erroneous medical disqualifications and hold the record for being the most successful since 1869. Wow. I got on the job. They weren't hiring a lot of people of color and women back in the day. So once I got on the department, I, I was just born to be a cop. I immediately excelled right out of uh, the academy under probation, uh, completed my probation, went to Venice Division, then was wheeled to Hollywood Division, worked specialized units the whole time. And then in 1978, I was one of 40 guys from the entire department to, to work LAPD's first ever gang suppression unit, Operation Central Bureau Crash. That was five of the 18 geographical divisions that were mostly plagued with the gang violence, East Los Angeles and the South Central. Wow. What was that like? Anywhere from one to three homicides per day we handled. Well, I, I'm sorry, I should say shootings. Uh, and obviously a lot of them resulted in homicides. Um, up into five, some hot days. But that's, that's all we did was monitor and attempted to suppress the gang uh, 
and Saturday in Los Angeles. Statistically, Los Angeles is the gang capital of the world that's wow. been established. So it was, um, it was, it was mayhem for four years. It make, and then to fast forward, uh, the uh, statistics were going right through the roof. Crime reports, which isn't good for business. It isn't good for uh, property sales. So the city fathers started bitching at the mayor. The mayor's, uh, you know, getting into the city council. City council gets into the chief. Mm -hmm. And then it comes rolling downhill to our lieutenant. And what he did, like any good crook would do, he starts cooking the books to lower the crime statistics. Mm. It got to one point where half the unit of these super cops transferred out, <clears throat> transferred out because of the, <clears throat> excuse me, the lack of integrity. Wow. <clears throat> excuse me. And um, <clears throat> I was crushing it. I loved it. I stayed and uh, ultimately went to the bureau commander Mm -hmm. to, um, <clears throat> you know, for him to do something about it. And uh, he said, Al, is there anybody else that will listen to you or back you up? I'm sorry. And I said, well, we got four supervisors. Two of them are just terrific. I'll see if they want to throw their careers under the bus. Anyhow, they talked to the commander for about two hours after I did, and uh, they backed up my story 100%. And heads were going to roll. There was going to be what they called a board of inquiry. And um, just at that time, I was working homicide. I had a tape on car living in her most of beach, living a good life. Mm. Got beeped up on a drive-by murder. And we arrested this one gang member from the avenues for cutting a four-year-old kid in half with a sawed-off. Mm. Uh, there was another shooter with a 357 Magnum. And the driver of the killer car was Alex Aguirre. Uh, and he eventually became the uh, president of La M, which is the Mexican Mafia. So these were heavyweight gangsters. Mm. So anyway, we arrested we 28 hours on this particular homicide. Search weren't the whole thing. We arrested one of the three shooters, which was the main shooter, the guy in the right rear seat, Arnold Aguirre with a 12 gauge shotgun. Mm. And um, while I was interviewing him, um, we had a witness, which was just really, really unusual because normally nobody will step up to the plate because basically they're signing their own death warrant. Yeah. Well, this very, very uh, honorable, courageous little 16-year-old actually told us exactly, because he was sitting right next to the decedent when he was hit with a two blasts with a shotgun. And he named the shooter. I knew the shooter. I had arrested him before. I had arrested his brother before. And uh, so anyhow, we took him into custody and I told this new guy that came into the unit that, uh, you know, we don't even have to talk to this guy. You know, we're dead tired. Let's go home, get a couple of hours sleep. We'll come back and scoop up the other two, mm -hmm. other two uh, uh, murderers. And he said, no, 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 no. Let's, let's, uh, you know, let's interview him and see if we can get some information. And I was, he was, he outranked me. So I, okay, fine. So I go in there this time. I, you know, I play the good guy, bad guy, I grab him by the lapels and push him against the wall and shift him towards his chair. Then I walk out like I was going to lose my temper and kick his butt. And this is where your parents supposed to go. Oh, you really pissed off Marino. You're going to get through the years, blah, 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 this and that. And as this new guy came out, talked to me, he says, Marino, you physically assaulted that arrestee under color of authority. And I'm going to the old man with it. Well, he knew that me and the lieutenant were at war. 
because I had rolled him over. They call it, it's whistleblowing, but they didn't call it that back then in the day. And there were no protections for that. Mm. So I was on the menu. And um, two weeks later, I went to the Colorado River water scheme with a bunch of cops and stewardesses. And I've been going there since 68. So I knew the whole layout, the whole place really well. Uh, I made a kid that I hadn't seen since high school. He had a 23-foot boat. He invited my entire LAPD party. We went bar hopping down the river. We walk into this bar called the Moonshine. Unbeknownst to us, it's a hangout for the Aryan Brotherhood. Oh. And uh, by supremacists. And I looked at this kid, and his name is Woody. So what in the hell are you doing bringing us to a place like this? So a couple of the people got a, a drink, the, the non-policemen, they didn't know what's going on. And then within a short time, this one, this one monster, crazy Jerry, AKA the skull crusher, just paroled from prison for cutting his wife's head off with an ax with a nine page rap sheet. This guy was oh. a monster, 6'4", 260. Wasn't wearing a shirt so he could show off his battle scars and knife wounds and gunshots and what have you. One scary looking monster. And just be, so we decided to get, get the hell out of there. And I was telling Charlie to make sure that all my friends were getting out. And just before I got to the door, he grabs me with this monster vice grip, wheels me around and goes to take my head off. I go into him like the Tasmanian devil. <clears throat> he didn't go down. That <laughs> just scared the hell out of me. Oh. So before you know it, the whole bar was just going crazy. There was a fight like you'd see on some movie or TV. At one point, I got him in a bar arm, trying to render him unconscious to get, you know, to save my life. Wow. And he started to wane, you know, go a little unconscious. I let go. And we all scatter out. Everybody runs in different directions. He runs to his vehicle, gets a sawed-off shotgun, and comes at us. No. And right before he got his shot off, boom, we dived under the water. I... Um, I, one, of the, one of our party came running, because everybody was in different directions. When I made my way back onto the land uh, on shore, this one girl uh, came up to us, part of our party, said that he's got a hostage, that they ran back into the bar after he got went us with a shotgun. So I, you know, she's, in my mind, it's a copper. She was a copper as well, um, that he's going to get her, he's going to rape her, and he's going to blow her brains out. This is way before cell phones. So I go knocking on this trailer park over in the Colorado River and finally somebody lets me in. I ID myself. I says, I got to put an officer needs help call. We've got a hostage situation. And then I thought to myself, after I put the help call out, you know, I don't know how long it's going to be before the, you know, the police roll. And, and, uh, and by then she'll be dead. So I asked him, if you got any firearms in the house? He gives me a stolen 30-30 rifle that we ascertained <laughs> later on. And he was also an ex-con. And um, so I go back there. I see the two bad guys. The biggest guy's got his back to me. I scream at him. And, you know, at, to get down. I give him my police stuff to get down. And they do it by the numbers. They've done it so many times. I walk up to him. And I know it's just a matter of time. So, you know, before the, the, the cavalry arrives. And I just put him on ice. So here comes three different law enforcement agencies rolling code three. And the lead officer, Deputy Lee, a female with a shotgun, she screams out to all her brother officers, it's crazy Jerry. So everybody knew this guy. He had been doing this kind of stuff all the time. By the way, two hours before we got in, before we went to the bar, he was in the bar showing off his 12 gauge shotgun. Mm. And not a single person in that bar 
call the police. So you could imagine the type of people that were yes. in that. Yes, right. So that was the heaven sent for the department. They got those two incidents, sent it to internal affairs, and this was a way to get rid of me so that that, that, so that, that investigation wouldn't go on. Two of the internal affairs investigators were overheard at the outset of their investigation that were, quote, we're going to fry Marino's ass. And I got a declaration, by the way, from the person that heard that. It was a, it was a female secretary in their office. She told a female secretary in our office, told me. And then a week before the trial board, the seminar trial board, the actual guy that was going to put on the case, a sergeant, uh, an advocate from Troy Ferris was, was heard by a former partner of mine. I know this sounds pretty crazy, just get, you know, but uh, one, of, one of the other IED investigators happened to be one of my training officers back in the day, and he heard this, this advocate saying, Marino's going to get fired regardless of the evidence. So I was done. It was over, even before it started. Anyhow, they took the word of these two murderers and fired me. No. One really, really obnoxious thing is that when the two internal affairs investigators interviewed this monster at his mother's house in Ontario, California, mm -hmm. he told them to their face, and it's on page 63 in the IED 109 page report, that I already got my homies from La Emma, the Mexican Mafia. We know that Marino's working gangs, and I'm going to kill him. Well, you're a former copper, so you know that that satisfies the statute for attempted murder. Yeah. You took an overt step in killing somebody, but you weren't successful. Those two IED guys, they didn't arrest him. They walked away, and they told their lieutenant. Lieutenant told a captain. Captain told the very commander. The very commander went up to the chief's office. Automatically, Metro, they start, they rolled a, the security protocol. Zero. In essence, Los Angeles Police Department sanctioned the Aryan Brotherhood to murder one of their own. I never once got any security, nor did my family. Wow. And that's all documented in the book, LA's Last Street Cop. So, Al, how, okay, so how long were you on the job for? Seven years before I got fired. No kidding. Yeah. And did, it just go, and if I missed it, I apologize. Did, did you end up getting that, the female hostage that he had? Turned out that when the two females in our party ran to the back of the bar, they ran behind, hid behind a dipsy dumpster. One of the girls stood up to get a better look at this animal as he was taking his shotgun and breaking it down and loading it. And she fell back and smacked her head against the wall of the, of the bar. He turned around, went at him. They ran. That's when they ran into the bar. So one of the two, Dolores, exited the bar, ran down the river, and that's where she seen me. And that's when she told me that he's got Patty hostage. Turns out that before he went in the bar, she made her way through a tiny little window and ran off somewhere. We didn't see her for, you know, until it was well over. So um, in essence, she was never really held as a hostage. But in my mind, yeah, absolutely. I went up there, I went to go rescue or to assist a brother officer, and a female in this case. And, and so that's why they fired you? They fired me for being in the fight with the ex-con <clears throat> and pushing the murder suspect. And by the way, I had never had an excessive beef 
uh, be for, you know, uh, for excessive force ever. And at the five and a half year juncture, I had accumulated 71 commendations. Wow. 71. More than half of them for arresting gang members that were armed. And it says in my, one of my red reports, Officer Moreno recovers more firearms than anybody in the unit, although has avoided an officer-involved shooting. It got to one point, one 13-day period, we call them deployment periods, 13 of 28 days, I arrested a gang member with a gun. And on the 13th day, I arrested two separate gang members with 45s. My supervisors called me in out of the field and told me, Al, this is like, I've never seen anything like this before. He says, and as good as you are, Murphy's Law is going to kick in. You're too hot. You're going to take a bullet in the head. We would like to ask you to work the desk just to cool off for a while. And I said, oh, hell no. I'm having the time of my life. And I went out. So all of the ratings, all of the, and the rating reports are very comprehensive. You know, they're signed by several different supervisors. Mm-hmm. And I was, at that time, they had a rating status uh, for officers that you get every six months. Mm-hmm. And it was outstanding, satisfactory, and satisfactory, and the, the other one. But only 10% were able in the entire department to be classified at the 10%. I was one of the 10 percenters. So I was as honest as you can possibly be as a police officer. So then what do you, so who, what happened? Like who had a vendetta? You said that you and the lieutenant didn't get well, along? The, the, yeah, me and the lieutenant. And when I went before the board, uh, when I went to the commander of the bureau, mm-hmm. he, the word was out that he was going to initiate what they call a board of inquiry which meant that several people were going to take a fall for acquiescing to him um, suppressing the true crime statistics because I was able to prove it and so were the two sergeants. So when I got into those two incidents, they sent me to the trial board and fired me and there was never a board of inquiry. In fact, the commander was, tra- was transferred that I spoke to, Commander Croker was transferred from the bureau commander three days after I was fired and hush nothing more. Wow. Yeah. So what have you been doing since then? <laughs> well, I got heavy into heroin and then I, I, didn't, I didn't do the drug <laughs> thing or the alcohol thing, which is pretty remarkable. Very course. remarkable. You know. Yeah. So what I did is I actually doubled up on my workouts. I'm a workout freak. And, really? and uh, in fact, I made the, uh, I was the first 69 year old ever to qualify for the American Ninja Warrior show on TV. And no shit. Five years ago. Yeah. That's awesome. So, um, so, but anyhow, what I did is I, I embraced my, my Catholicism, my working out. And what I did is that I walked through the fire. Hmm. Two years after I was terminated, I had applied for like 19 PDs or police departments. Culver City Police Department, which is one of the 93 cities in the county of Los Angeles, hired me from nine other guys. And I was the only one that had been fired. So I really had to establish, you know, my innocence. They did their own independent investigation. They looked at my killer record and I was hired. So I was with Culver City for two years, I'm sorry, for two weeks and I pulled a pin. You did? It was much too Mayberry for me. Really? I I was habituated to this insanity. It was a lovely little police department. 
but I, I, it just wasn't a good fit. And, and I quit two weeks after. By the way, I took a polygraph. Obviously, they made me take a polygraph as to these allegations, right? Mm -hmm. And I passed the polygraph. Mm. And then just two years ago, I took another polygraph asking those questions. I passed that as well. Mm. And I petitioned every chief of police, every chief of police from, from uh, uh, Gates to present, including Villaraigosa and Garcetti and the city council mm -hmm. or request for a hearing and nobody will touch it with a 10 foot pole. Hmm. So I became means? a private investigator. So you became so, a- To answer your question. So you, how long have you been being a PI? Well, I've been a PI since 85. Wow. And I specialize in unsolved crimes and I've been all over the US and to different countries. Uh, it's great stuff, but it's still not my beloved LAPD. Yeah, yeah. When I talk about the LAPD, I'm, I'm talking my brothers and sisters that are out there in their black and whites, putting it on the line 24-7 for people they don't even know. Mm -hmm. um, my, <clears throat> my quarrel is with a certain niche in the very hierarchy or staff management for Los Angeles Police Department. But my personal experience with my brothers and sisters, they're the best our Lord ever created. They're the mm. greatest human beings in the world. Mm. Well, and, and you know, I really have to say, so obviously you're on Changing the Culture podcast. And so what I want to talk to you about is I want to talk to you about that hierarchy. And I want to talk to you about the culture. What, what, sure. what do you think? Like what led to that? And do you think it's still happening today? It's systemic, and a, a police department is no different than corporate America. Mm. Uh, it, it's kind of two sets of rules. You know, once you get into the commander area of it, captains and commanders and, and deputy chiefs, it becomes a political thing. And they will, and this is from personal experience. So there's two standards and uh, of, of, of discipline and, uh, and, and also uh, it's gotten so incredibly political today. So staff management listens to the mayor and his whims, okay? And we live in a sanctuary city right here. So it's to hell with the rank and file and um, they just basically, you know, protect their, their butts same thing, kind of like an analogy would be Washington, D.C. You got some of these people, the Congress and the Senate, they've been in office for two, three, and four decades. Yeah, yeah, and after yeah. that long, it just becomes corrupt. Yes. Um, and so it's the same thing with Los Angeles Police Department. But um, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not talking ill of, when I say the Los Angeles Police Department, I'm not, I'm not talking about my brothers and sisters out on the street. I'm talking about a handful of very unethical uh, managers. That's who I'm talking about. Are they still in there, you think? Or oh, absolutely. It's even worse now because uh, uh, about, I think it was about eight years ago, mm -hmm. or the uh, police commission would choose who the chief of police is going to be. Well, they changed the, the city charter, and it's now the mayor that picks the police chief. And so the police <laughs> works for the mayor and it becomes 100% political. Yeah. And it, there's no separation there. 
Yeah. It's just, it's awful. Just yep. awful. I can relate to that. Yeah. I can totally relate to that. What do you think the culture, like, what do you think the culture is like now? Um, is like, how, how do I want to say this? Like, do you think that there's a lot of corruption going on? Can you be a little more specific on corruption? Well, so, you know, uh, let me tell you my experience. So my experience, I'm from Maine, very small police departments. The biggest police department we have is like 325 people, our Maine State Police. I think- like, I've been our, to Maine. Yeah. Our, community. It is beautiful. But I'm just yeah. saying, I can't even come, I, like I can't even wrap my head around like LAPD. Right? How many, yeah. you know what I'm saying? That's, yeah, like yeah, my, yeah. that's bigger than my entire state. Like, <laughs> like one police force is more than my entire state yeah. has for officers. So I'm just saying like, it seems to me like from like my little, you know, state, it just seems like there could be a lot, like you've got gangs, you've got all this stuff going on. Right. And then you have like, and then we have our, you know, we see the movies and the video, you know, just shit. Like, it just seems like there could be, there could be like undetected corruption that goes on all the time there. Um, corruption kind of being maybe a conspiratorial thing or corruption. You know, I, I just, and if you could just basically ask me, Al, does, does, do they do this or do they do that? Or do they, you know, when you're talking about corruption, because corruption is such a big tent, you yeah, know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, do you, is it the culture over there to do like for road cops to do like shit unethically? Well, when I was on their police department, there were, um, there were some terrible things that happened um, mm-hmm. by corrupt cops. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, a, a police department is just like any other major yes. corporation, and there's going to be, you know, unethical behavior by all mm-hmm. these parties. But I mean, there was one LAPD copper that was actually robbing banks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Off duty. Uh, and when I'm laughing, I'm just laughing at the insanity of it. You know. Yeah. There was another that was actually a contract shooter. For, uh, for a gang, uh, there was uh, when I was working in Hollywood Division, there was uh, uh, um, there were six cops that were actually bur- they were working morning watch when nobody's around. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, for your audience, which is like twelve at night to seven in the morning when it's the quietest, mm-hmm. and they'd get a slingshot and smack a, a window where they were selling like you know locked electronic goods, and uh, alarm would go off. As we call it the code thirty in LA. It goes to uh, automatic lows to uh, you know our communications. Communication comes out to a radio call. You know, six eight twenty seven C. The you know uh, code thirty. This particular. So we'd go there, look it around, and ninety percent of the time they were just you know false calls. But in this case, the windows were broken, so the bad guys would roll to the, you know, to the to the burglary. And if another car got it that wasn't part of their group, they would buy the call from them. And we're just right around the corner. We'll take it for you. And of course, the other car would go, okay, fine. And so they, were going to, they would ransack it, put all the stuff in the, in the trunk of the police car, and then somehow get into the trunk of their car. And after about like nine months, they were finally caught. So yes, there are corrupt cops. Now, let's get to more specific. Are there policemen that are... Um, that are racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there policemen that exclusively look to harm somebody of color? I can tell you from my 
personal. And I worked in just the, the short, almost seven years, you know, I worked seven divisions. Normally in 20 years, you'll work <clears throat> two or three. But because I was working crash work five, plus I worked, you know, um, Venice and Hollywood. And I can tell you before God that I, a couple of times I've heard some pretty degrading sorts of things. And of course, we're talking in the 70s, okay, in the very earliest where I would hear them say something disparaging about a black man. Uh, but when I actually worked with them or around them, I never seen anything that we would call, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I've got this particular stimulus to do this to this particular race of people. Although that does happen. It does mm -hmm. happen. Mm -hmm. But uh, maybe they didn't do it in front of me because I was, you know, I'm, I'm Hispanic. I, I don't know. And I was very, very, uh, somebody that normally wouldn't be cowed by, I don't care who the hell I work with, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe that has to do with it. But I can only speak from my personal experience. And I've met cops throughout the United States. Mm -hmm. And I've met cops all through England, all through Australia. I spent a lot of time there, met a lot of coppers there. And race relations today, um, uh, Autumn, are nowhere like they used to be mm. in the 50s in Selma, Alabama. Mm. Hell no. Race relations have never been, and I know this is probably going to blow some fuses, but I have personally never seen them better today than ever before mm. for people of color and women as well. Mm -hmm. I just haven't, you know, haven't seen it. It is not Selma, Alabama anymore. Yeah. Uh, you know, we are the first Western nation to actually vote a black man as our president. Mm -hmm. None of the other Western countries have ever done that. Not once, twice. We got people of color, black and brown, uh, in the Supreme Court, for God's sakes, mm -hmm. Fortune 500, 100s, doctors, attorneys, lawyers. It is the best place ever for our brothers and sisters of color today. And I'm talking, I was raised in the hood in the 50s in a gang infested area. Uh, I was in the curfew zone in 1965 Watts riots. Mm. I was just out of high school. So I've seen this firsthand. This is something that I've seen or heard or like to think of. I'm talking from my personal experience. Yeah. And God, I'm not going to bullshit you or anybody else. I'm going to tell you the truth. Yeah. Well, you, so you said that you, you were in high school. Like, wait, time out. I want to go back. Tell me about how you grew up. I know you faced a ton of adversity, which probably I would like to know if you thought that made you the, the hell of a cop that you were on LAPD and able to relate to people on the street? Do you think that's because of how you grew up? Absolutely. I mean, I was, I was raised in a particular area where this one gang was just dominant. It was called Florencia 13. And it was a murderous lot. I seen my first homicide before I was in the first grade. Some kid that was butchered up. He was only like about 15 or 16. It was really grotesque. Oh, you don't yeah. die right away when you get knifed and in, uh, in non-vital parts. And it was a really ugly agony. So I, you know, I was hip to the whole scene at the jump. And I, I had seven brothers, younger, younger brothers. And so we were seen by the major gangs around there, Florencia, Hickory Street, Watt Street, some of the other as eight 
you know, eight gladiators for them. One day in the uh, ninth grade, I was approached by some guys from Hickory Street, which was just down the corner, wanted us to, you know, to get into the gang. Um, the fight was on. And I kicked the hell out of both of them. And that garnered respect. It's, I know it's kind of a, it's, it's such a mentality that it's like in Venus or Mars. Most normal, good people can't fathom that kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking personal experience. That, and then across the street was a gangster by the name of Spanky. And he was one of the three shot callers for La Florencia. And he took my family under his wing and protected us all those years. Wow. And, uh, Autumn, it was my, I got two other books coming out. The other two books are The Journey to the LAPD, which is an impossible journey. Yeah. Insane, okay? Uh, in the second grade, I had an undiagnosed industrial case of dyslexia and dyscalculia. Those are neurological problems where you can't make out words or, or numbers. At the same time in the second grade, I was diagnosed with late calvus perthes. So I had a brace on the left foot and a sling that, and crutches for two years. And I had a Boris Gump full on brace for another two years in an elevator shoe. And that was, you know, from second to sixth grade. So I was the dumbest kid in school. Mm -hmm. And you know how children can be very, very mean. Yes. So what I did is that I acted up to refocus the light from my scholastic inabilities, because it was so humiliating and embarrassing, to being the cheeky one, and, mm -hmm. and getting in trouble all the time, and getting these penances, you know, having to write, I shall not do this on the chalkboard. I hold the Guinness Book of Records for penances. That was Catholic school. <laughs> uh, the nuns used to beat me like a stepchild, you know, so I, <laughs> Jeez. Uh, but the beating was worth the people perceived and looked at me as being the cheeky kind of exciting, you know, kid as opposed to being the really dumb kid. It was mm. really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so all through grade school and high school, I was a DNF student. And I finally got sick of it in the 12th grade, dropped out. Then I got in trouble with the law three different times. And things were not looking good for me because I wanted to be a Los Angeles police officer from the time I was diagnosed at Children's Hospital uh, in 1952, when Dr. Pierce picks me up, puts me in the examinating table, looks right into my face and he goes, what do you want to be, little man, when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a policeman. And ever since then, I wanted to be a policeman. Oh, wow. And I, I just can't even imagine. So like growing up the way that you grow up and in and facing everything and but that drive is what made you a policeman and then obviously that drive is what got you into working set what what did you say was it like seven divisions in seven years yeah amazing and so why did you tell me about why why did you write this book well i was a fired cop and that's a dishonor mm -hmm. and to me all my life, honor is the cornerstone to, to the very cornerstone to a man's character and being and worth. And I've always, always looked at, at luminaries like Winston Churchill and Charlemagne and these really incredible people. And I just, you know, I wanted to be like them, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I got fired from the Los Angeles Police Department, it was 
I, it, truly, you know, you heard the word, there's no words. Well, there were no words in this particular case. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the first few years were the worst. And uh, like I was, before I was, in particular, before I got hired by Culver City PD, I was working these really non-manual security jobs, you know, working in these dime dance hotels, uh, downtown LA, where I had all these girls from South and Central America. That's when we had all these low intensity wars, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. And I was to protect them from the other, from the gangsters and the predators and what have you. Mm-hmm. And uh, from being a, you know, being a homicide investigator with LAPD, you know, so it was a hell of a choice. But anyhow, I, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I've always petitioned East Chief of Police mm-hmm. uh, to get an opportunity because most of the material that, that I got, um, exculpatory material that I got, documentation from the department, it took me years to finally get it. Once I, and so once I got it, I put it into what they call a request for a hearing. I formally submitted it to all these different people, and they're not going to attempt it with a template pool. I've written thousands of letters in the last four decades to every uh, director, producer, agent in Hollywood, every newscast in the United States and around the world. And I've got a stack here I could show you that would just blow your mind. And it was Mark Bowden the author of Black Hawk Down, yeah. one of the people that I wrote. And I, I actually got his card just right over here. He actually took the time. What I did is I put a four-page overview of my story that is just, nobody could believe it. Mm-hmm. But I had it documented, okay? So he asked, answered me back and he goes, Al, I, I want to be honest with you. He says, listen, man, you know, as incredible as your story is here, he says, Nobody's going to touch it. You've been wasting your time all this time. Everybody has their babies. Mm. They're not going to take this unknown guy. The book is, there's not even a book here. He says, Al, I read your overview. And he says, write the damn well. Write the book yourself. Mm. And it was that catalyst that, where I put pen to paper and, uh, I complete, there's three books total. This first one came out first. And um, so, you know, when I think back, when I was a copper, after I found out how the hell to handle the dyslexia and what have you, um, while I was processing to get and fighting City Hall to get onto Los Angeles Police Department, yeah, uh, everybody that was getting hired on then had some college. So I knew that I had to go to college, at least try to get a year or two, you know, maybe an associate of arts at two years. So I decided when I, when I got back in 1973, I said, I got, but that scared the hell out of me. Nothing really scares me. And I was lucky enough to get this one, she was an English teacher that helped me process through. And I told her about my concerns. She goes, Al, it sounds like dyslexia that, you know, one of the problems that you're having. Hell, I couldn't even pronounce the name of the word at the time. She gave me some tests and she goes, you got an industrial case and this is the problem that letters and numbers jump in front of each other. She gave me some concepts on how to handle it. And I says, okay, fine. Uh, make my chart out to, I, I want to graduate in a year and a half. And she looked at me like I was completely mad. She goes, Al, you haven't been in school for 10 years. You're a DNF student. Right now you can maybe read a level four or five, fifth grade. No, not even A students coming around out of high school are going to do it in 18 months. I said, yeah, but they're not Marine Corps Vietnam veterans. Mm. <laughs> I graduated in 18 months and made the Alpha Gamma Honor Society. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. What the hell? Like, what is, what, what is in you? Cause you, whatever it is, you need to give that, like, you need to sell that shit. <laughs> like your drive. I mean, it's insane. It's in the books. It's in the books. Um, uh, the first book, I'm kind of doing it backwards. The first book's kind of like the Godfather where the Corleone family is already doing their mayhem. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then the next book is the journey from Sicily to New York to becoming the Corleone family. The next two books that come out are my journey from 1945 when I was born yeah. all the way through to finally get on to the last, you know, to the LAPD. And they are as documented as this book is. I don't know how to answer this, but all of my life, starting back in, when I was like nine years old, I got these little sleeves, like if you put some, some documents in it, and I got four or five little pieces of paper, report cards from 1954, all these enough, uh, traffic tickets that I used to get, uh, you know, whatever. So I, I don't know to this day why I did that, but it was just pure gold because I brought those documents out. It gave me kind of a time frame when you pick out a certain item, you think of different other things that happened that you hadn't thought about in years. And I just started writing, hmm. you know, so that's what the next two books are going to be about. That's cool. And so as I'm, you know, as our listeners are picking up this book, um, tell me, like, how did you come up with the title? Ellie's last streak up. Police in today's um, isms, and sanctuary city mentalities are no longer able to do what we were able to do under the auspices of Gates. He was a proactive uh, um, philosophy of policing. In other words, you go out, you study the crimes, you know where to look, you know the profiles of the bad guys, and Mm -hmm. you stop them before they rape pillage, murder, and carry on. Mm. Today, there's no way in hell that you'll get out of your car and initiate an investigation and stop the bad guy before they kidnap your six-year-old little daughter or four-year-old son, before they go into this little mom's and pop store, put a gun to somebody's head and blow their brains out, before they kidnap somebody, before they steal something. Mm -hmm. That I am LA's last three cup. That that better is gone. That's where it just kind of came to me. I like it. And and tell me what what if I mean obviously we talked a lot about what we're gonna learn from the book, but if if you could summarize if it. If I can just real quick, you know, I was just kind of looking at the time real quick. Because I, I was the Zoom that we're on said that I only had a 40 minute thing. So we're over 40 minutes now, but apparently it didn't cut off. So if it cuts off, it's because of this Zoom thing. So okay, <laughs> I don't you know, know, you're good. I think you're, okay. it, you're good because I'm hosting okay. it. You're good. Okay. <laughs> okay. I didn't know you had that kind of influence. <laughs> I should. Yeah. Um, can you tell me, summarize your book? summarize like for because my listeners you know they're cops they're first responders so tell me why a cop should read your book well i don't only see it as police officers but it's funny that i just i just got a um a uh message on facebook Mm -hmm. 
thanking me that Al for writing, his dad was a Los Angeles police officer. And he says, my dad has always been kind of like nonverbal about the whole thing. He's got high blood pressure. He's drinking a little bit too much. And he says, mm-hmm. as I'm reading your book and your experience from the academy, all the way up to what you went through, he says, it gives us a crystal clear picture, like anything else that I've ever read on what our men and women are experiencing as they go through this process mm-hmm. for their communities throughout the United States. Mm-hmm. I wrote the book for two reasons. One is to basically to clear my name. Mm-hmm. And the second one is to give the public a unique, honest, incredible, documented, intense story of what our law enforcement officers are, are doing. And I think mm-hmm. that you know, obviously not everybody in the world will read it, but I truly, the, the, the things that I'm getting from all these people that have read the book anymore, they're going, we, we didn't realize that, that it happens like this. We didn't realize that management's like that. We didn't realize that. And of course, I talk about the deaths of my two best friends on the police department. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about some of the insanity that working in some of these incre- you know, incredible areas. And um, I actually got a, um, a review from New South Wales Police Department, and it is magic. And also, I spent five months there, and I went through all five of the six states and the two territories, and I went, of course, from Copper to Copper to Copper to Police Station to Police Station. Mm-hmm. Met him a couple of LAPD stories, and <laughs> it went completely nuts. And the uh, New Scotland New York uh, magazine that comes out every two months is doing a whole spread on the book as well. So um, I've, been, I've driven from Dover to Inverness twice. I've seen more of the UK and more, you know, more of, the, of, of their history than probably most people in the United Kingdom. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, I know I, I start to kind of get, get a little peripheral when, I, when you ask these questions, but I have so damn much stuff. <laughs> it's hard to harness it, you know. You've seen a lot of stuff. You've done a lot of stuff. That's, that's for sure. Um, well, and so where can we find this, this book? Are you they can, all? You can, you can get it on, on Amazon and just about every other place where you buy a book today. Okay. You know, just, uh, well, you can also go to the webpage, uh, laststreetcop.com. Got it. But uh, uh, just as effective would be is that, you know, if, if you go to Amazon, because the world is buying their products from Amazon. Yeah, today, yeah, so. that's true. And it's a simple, simple, you know, title. Remember, Ellie's last street cop. But you know, it also, you know, talks about my two officer involved shootings, um, which were very, very, very different from what you normally see. And uh, hmm. so the intensity is is there's no lack of intensity. But it's not just Al Marino. I speak about all my several of my other brothers and sisters. I talk about the two deaths of my two best friends. Mm. I talk about my off-duty time, which is got a lot of sex and a lot. It's it's I mean it's 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 it's, it's, it's all it's an ecosystem, you know, that yeah. that harnesses everything that was going on from 1975 to 1982. It's mm. like look at it, see it, smell it, touch it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited for, you know, our listeners to dive on in. Um, as we wrap this up, do you, anything you want to leave Sheepdog Nation with before we check mastermind members, see if they have questions? I, you know, I, I would, I, what, what I'd like to do is, 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 is look for some sort of 
um, oh gee, some understanding and appreciation of what the overwhelming majority of our men and women are doing for the United States. We've only got 680,000 policemen policing 328, 000, uh, 328 million people. Mm. And it isn't like what people, too many people are looking at today regarding this, this, this horrific, horrific uh, murder that happened, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, last week. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I want to tell your viewers that um, uh, police are your friends. You know, they'll put their lives on their, uh, you know, on the line for, for you and your mm -hmm. family and your children. And, and, and I hope that everybody takes a breath back or step back, tries to look at, you know, kind of some perspective. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the process, we got to weed out these, these assholes that have no business on the job because they crucify, yes. uh, you know, and what they did was repugnant, mm -hmm. inexcusable, no excuse, end of story. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, uh, to your audience, I, you know, it, it's, it's, they're a good crew of people. They really are. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for being with us, Al. And Mastermind members, do we have any questions, Don? Do you have anything you want to say? I could. Um, no, I mean, you, it was amazing. Thank you for sharing. And um, I'm definitely going to pick up your book. I didn't have your book. Uh, yeah. So, I don't know, just, it's just interesting to think about what everything you said today and how it was when you were a cop and then how things are now. My yeah. dad, um, retired FBI. So like, I'm, you know, both sides, like you see what you're oh, saying. So like, what yeah, I'm they're, saying. they're, they're key police are there, you know, to help us, you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, so I don't know. But. There's a lot of material to absorb. You're probably going to yeah, go later, right, go lay yeah. down for about a half hour after yeah. this yeah. podcast. But, I mean, you're right there in the middle of all of it, like the Watts riots, like all the Rodney King stuff. Yeah, I was going to say Rodney that. King too, I mean, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, you've seen it a lot. <laughs> yeah. What would be maybe your one biggest thing that you would give advice to officers now, like how to handle, like, being hated in the news, you know? Uh, you you know, don't. Yeah, these things occur from time to time. I think it's been like what, 28 years since the Rodney King thing. And, and to all my brothers and sisters, there will be times like really trying times like this, but stay true to your heart, mm -hmm. you know, uh, continue doing your service for, you know, for our communities. Um, time will bring some sense uh, and normalcy back to, you know, back to the United States. The U.S. just has this history of bouncing back. I, I think that, that, that all of us as Americans, you know, uh, uh, regardless of your, you know, your color, your creator, or whatever, you know, I, I think that in the last analysis, uh, uh, this is truly a brilliant, wonderful, good nation. And we're going to be fine. We really are going to be fine. It's just got to push through this hell for, you know, for the time being. Right. Well, thank you, Al. I love that because you're leaving us with positivity. I love that. Uh, Sheepdog Nation. Um, the Al's website is going to be right down in the show notes, but go onto Amazon, go pick up his book. It's called LA's Last Street Cop. 
clearly this guy's got stories. He's got lots to tell us. Uh, it'll be a good read. Al, thank you so much for being here. Sheepdog Nation, I'll see you next time. They buried me in the water and I came, I knew. <laughs> now I'm baptized in blue. I'm a fighter, I'm a fighter. I'm a never quit, I refuse to lose. I got heart and I got gritty, I'm a warrior. Just been baptized in blue, I'm a warrior. Just been baptized in blue. I'm a fighter. To understand what I do, only the damn blue line, cause they baptized in blue. Oh, I'm a fighter, I'm a winner, never quit. I refuse to lose. I got heart and I got gritty, I'm a warrior. Just been baptized in blue, I'm a warrior. Just been baptized in blue. I'm a fighter, never winner, never quit. I refuse to lose. I got heart and I got gritty, I'm a warrior. Just been baptized in blue, I'm a warrior. Just been baptized in blue. I can't explain the pain when I see your name on the wall All I feel is rage, put me in a cage, let me brawl Sometimes I can't help but cry, like why did he die? I know it was him, but it could have been I What about the kids? Uh, what about the spouse? Yeah, now who gon' put food inside them babies' mouth? It's a bigger picture when the officer down Domino effect, Blue Nation family, country and town The media don't cover us huh. Well maybe Fox, cause MSNBC and CNN Surely don't care about cops, politicians More concerned about protecting the legals That are laying the law down And protecting the people, let me get off my soapbox Before I curse, I don't seen way too many cops Riding in hearse, well I wouldn't expect you to understand What I do, only the thin blue light Cause they baptized Blue, uh. I'm a fighter, I'm a winner, never quit, I refuse to lose I got heart and I got gritty, I'm a warrior Just been baptized in blue, I'm a warrior Just been baptized in blue I'm a fighter, never winner, never quit, I refuse to lose I got heart and I got gritty, I'm a warrior Just been baptized in blue, I'm a warrior Just been baptized in blue, uh. If I'm faced with a mission, I'm gonna complete it If that means being deleted I live with the credence. I do this for the combat vets and LEOs when I'm suited, ready to go. It's either friend or foe. Only Lord knows what my future's in store. I only kill with the hope to see more. So God don't close that door. If I take a life, it's him or me. 
with the host to survive, not be a good tree. I go in situations that you cannot imagine, deal with things that you cannot fathom. No, it buts or rather, I'd rather fight for cause than live for nothing. So when you read my headstone, you know I died for something. You hypersensitive, she complain by justified force. You blame the cops first, that don't work, you blame the courts. But I wouldn't expect you to understand what I do, only the thin blue line, cause they baptized in blue arm. I'm a fighter. Baptized in blue, I'm a warrior. That's been baptized in blue. Uh.